time to get that together. No. <laughs> I just, just kidding. Just kidding. I, I was fascinated by that too. Well, today we're going to be starting a new series called The Story. And the story is going to take us from Genesis to Revelation in 31 weeks. The easiest way for you to follow along with the story would be to pick up a copy of the book, uh, the story on our book table. It's the NIV Bible, New International Version, with transitions that kind of summarize the chapters in between. So you'll be reading the actual text of the Bible in each chapter, and then you'll have these kind of summary statements that connect you to the story as it goes along. But you can also use your Bible as well to follow along and do the reading each week. On the table in the foyer, we have a um, story, kind of a chart with biblical references for each week. So all 31 weeks are here. You can pick that up, put it in your Bible, and you could read uh, ahead of the sermon each week what we're going to be looking at the next Sunday. And so that that's a pretty easy way to follow along. Also... We have a uh, 31-week prayer and praise guide. You can use it as a journal. It's got prayer requests in there that you could pray for our church and for yourself each week, as well as a place where you can take some notes or put additional prayer requests down. These are free. We were able to get them from another church uh, and, and put them to good use. So we have, I think, about 160 of them. When they're gone, they're gone. But if you would like to use that, uh, it'd be a great way for you to pick up one and use it as a way to follow along in the series and pray for our church as we go through this. I'm excited about it. I think God's going to use this in a significant way to help us grow in our understanding of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation again as we make our way through it. So take a look at those after the service today. Uh, if you want to take your Bibles and open to Genesis chapter 1, or if you have the story with you and you want to turn to page 1, uh, we'll start there, and let's, let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word, for its power, its beauty, its authority, and clarity. And Father, I pray that as we look into the scriptures at the beginning of this series that we are about to do, that you would use it in a powerful way in each of our lives. Help us, Lord, to see what an amazing God you are and to stand in awe of you and your plan of salvation that started from the very beginning before the worlds were made. Father, bless our time together in your word and use it today to challenge and encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. The beginning of the Bible is like the start of an action-packed movie. You know, if you've ever come in on a movie and you miss the first few minutes, you know, and it's just whipped along and gone in, sometimes you can feel lost. Or the rest of the story doesn't quite make as much sense if you didn't get the beginning of the movie. Well, the Bible is like that too. The opening chapters of Genesis set the stage for everything else that follows. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells us about the origin of the universe of man, of the Sabbath, of marriage, of sin, sacrifice, and of the nations. I mean, and you move along in those opening chapters very quickly as you walk through each of these significant events. There's no finality here. This is the background for the rest of the story. And we're going to move quickly through these opening chapters. 
And I will tell you up front that this series is going to be different from what I normally do. Normally I like to take a book of the Bible and study it and kind of go deep and explain what each passage means and take a smaller chunk. This is going to be more like a survey of the Bible. We are going to move quickly and we're going to move through some significant passages without being able to dig as deep as I would like or maybe as you would like. But I will say that there is a place for both kinds of series. There's a time to help us get the big picture and see where the individual pieces fit in, and there's a time to go deep. And what I'd like to do in this series is really to whet your appetite and to encourage you to dig into these passages that maybe you haven't looked at as closely. And we have other classes and opportunities to do that. Some of the things we'll talk about today relate to apologetics. You might have questions about that. How do you answer things that come up that others may have questions about? Well, I'd encourage you to take the Truth Project class this winter that Pastor Jason's going to be leading. But there are other classes, too, that can help you to dig deeper into the Word of God. And my prayer is that your faith in God and His amazing grace and this amazing story will just grow and be enhanced. So here are some observations I'd like to share with you as we begin today. Again, open your Bibles to chapter 1 or to page 1 in your book. The main character of the story is God. That's important to say. The main character of the story isn't us, it's God. And just four words into the story, we read, In the beginning, God. Before there was anything else, God was there. And he was present. And this is his story. This is God's story that we are going to be looking at today and all the way through this series. And what we want to discover is how does our story fit into God's story and what he is doing in our world. And this story starts with a big bang, if you will. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator. Scripture clearly affirms that. That this universe didn't appear by accident or chance. It was created by the purposeful design of a holy and all-powerful God. He made the world. He designed it. There is order in our world. God created the universe ex nihilo. The theologians would say that means out of nothing. God created the universe out of nothing. God spoke the word. He gave the command and the worlds came into being. Billions of stars and galaxies were scattered across the universe by his command. And Genesis 1 doesn't answer all of our questions. I mean, we wonder about that. I mean, what was that like? Or how did he do it? Or how did all of this happen? I hope someday in heaven we'll be able to see a replay of what it was like when God created the heavens and the earth and all of the angels sang for joy at his command. The book of Hebrews tells us that it is by faith that we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. There are things that we don't understand. There are questions that we don't have answers for completely. The Bible tells us what we need to know that God is the creator. He's the maker of heaven and earth, and he is the creator of all of us as well. The form of Genesis 1 is poetic. 
There is a structure and a symmetry in the way that the creation story is told. Days 1, 2, and 3 are the places created by God. And so on day 1, you have God creating light and darkness. On day 2, He creates the sky and the water. On day 3, He creates the land. So He is creating these spaces that He is now going to fill in days 4, 5, and 6. These places are filled with what they were created for. In day four, he places the sun and moon and stars in place. Day five, the birds and the sea creatures fill the sky and the sea. And on day six, he creates animals and human beings. And then he looks at everything that he has made and he pronounces it very good. He looked at his creation, perfect without sin, without flaw, and he pronounced it very good in Genesis 1.31. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. That day of rest that God took is the origin of the Sabbath, which after the resurrection became the Lord's day. One day in seven, we are to rest from our labor. One day in seven, we are to come together as we do today for worship and rest. There is a rhythm and order to life because we are made in the image of God. And whenever man has tried to violate that by running beyond those kind of limits and boundaries that God has set in place, we feel that. We feel that. I mean, there's a reason we don't go 31 days of work and then take a day of rest. We would die under the burden. In the French Revolution, when they tried to create a 10-day work week, it did not work. It proved too hard for both man and beast. There's a rhythm and an order to life again because we are made in the image of God. God is our creator. And secondly, the story tells us that God created people to have a relationship with him. And we'll see that in chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2. Creation is not the point of the story. As beautiful and awesome as this universe is, the galaxies, I mean, when you see the pictures that the Hubble Space Telegraph, for example, has, uh, telescope has taken, when you look at those amazing pictures of our solar system, the stars, the heavens that are out there, it's astounding. And even as wonderful as this earth is, the Grand Canyon, Niagara Falls, the Tetons, or Yellowstone, or those amazing natural wonders that we see, creation's not the point of the story. God's grand vision, the supreme point of the story, is to be with us. God created us. Because he wants us to share in his love and joy for eternity. Now that's pretty amazing. God didn't have to create us. In Genesis 1.26, the scripture says, Let us make man in our own image. Who is the us? Let us make man in our own image. It is a reference to the Trinity. God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before the worlds were made, before man came into existence, enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another. There was love, 
There was fellowship. There was communion that they had before the worlds were made. God did not need to create us. He wanted to create us because he wanted us to share again in his love and joy for eternity. And parents get that. Grandparents understand what that's like. I mean, why do we have children? Or why do we look forward to having grandchildren? Because we want to share with them our love. We want to share with them this world. We want to help them to grow and experience God's love in their life. I mean, we get that. And God created people because He desires to have a relationship with us. Does that give a boost to your self-esteem? That God created you because He loves you? And he wants you to share in his glory. The high point of creation then is man. Made in the image of God with dignity and worth. We are made in the image of God, male and female, to reflect the glory of God. And God's the one who's who's behind all of that. He's the one who designed us exactly as we are. We are not here by chance. You know, even scientists and astronomers are amazed when they study the universe and they look at all of the factors that are necessary for human life to exist. You know, one of the things that we just take for granted every day because we live on this planet Earth is how unique it is. And when you look at all the parameters in order for human life to continue, it's a very narrow range that they have to fit in. You know, if our earth was any farther from the sun, it would be too cold. If it's any closer, it would be too hot. If our earth was any bigger, it would affect our gravitational forces. If it was any smaller, you wouldn't have the atmosphere that we do. If the moon wasn't at the precise distance it is from the earth, you wouldn't have the tides and the effects on that. If the Earth's axis was any different, you wouldn't have the seasons that we enjoy. If the rotation was faster, the winds and the storms would be too violent for us to exist on this Earth. And there are hundreds of factors like that that are necessary for human life to exist. And when scientists look at all of that stuff, I mean, they, they are forced, even the secular scientists, to say, you know, it really does look like this universe and this planet was made for man. Hugh Ross has written about that, and he said, you know, the odds of finding one planet in the entire universe with all of those factors just right for man is fewer than one trillionth of one trillionth percent. To even find one planet in our entire universe with all of those factors in place is amazing. Well, the story continues with man's fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were created to have a relationship with God. And God placed them in a beautiful garden to tend it and to enjoy it. We read in the scripture that the Garden of Eden was uh, where the Tigris and Euphrates are. That would be modern day Iraq where uh, this garden was placed. And God walked with them in the garden. I mean, that's amazing. We don't know how long that paradise existed before sin entered into the world. But you have this picture of this beautiful, perfect environment with all of the bounty that was there, with all of the lushness of God's creation. And man is enjoying perfect fellowship with God. And God walked with them in the garden. 
We believe that that was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who walked with them in the garden, and they enjoyed that kind of fellowship. But God placed two trees in the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave to man a command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or he would die. On the day he ate of it, he would die. And Adam and Eve were created with the freedom and power to choose. God did not make man as a robot to just simply do everything that he asked. God does not force our love. God created man with the ability to choose. And Adam and Eve, we are told, were tempted by the serpent, that is Satan. Now, there's a lot that we could say in Genesis chapter 3, and I've preached on that passage before. When Satan came to them, he said, Did God really say? And he began to question the Word of God. And then he denied the Word of God by saying, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, you know, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan tempted Adam and Eve the same way he tempts you and me, the same way he tempts people today. He appeals to our flesh. He appeals to our lust. He appeals to our pride. He tells us we don't need God. We can be our own God. And in those questions, Satan placed doubt about the Word of God and its authority in our life. And he questioned the goodness and the motives of God. And Adam and Eve believed the lie. They rebelled against God and ate from the forbidden tree and God's vision to be with his people was ruined. Adam and Eve then tasted the fruit of sin for the first time in their lives. They experienced shame and guilt where there had been no shame and guilt before. They hid from God, where before they had walked with God in the garden, they now hid from God when they heard Him in the garden. They did not want to see Him because they were ashamed of what they had done. And when God confronted them, they began to blame each other. They blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve, and Adam even blamed God for what had happened. It's the woman that you gave to me. That's why I took and I ate. And the ground was cursed. Their work became toil. And their pain increased. And in an act of grace, God drove them out of the garden. He drove them out to keep them from eating from the tree of life and living in their fallen state forever. In fact, the rest of the Bible is about God's pursuit to get us back. He loves us that much. God desires that we would have a relationship with Him that will last for eternity. Well, the Bible goes on to show us how deeply sin has affected the human race. And we see that in Genesis 4 and again in chapter 6 to 9. It tells us that sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience. And one generation later... Cain murders his brother Abel. It is a tragic story that we read about where these two brothers begin to quarrel and envy one another and Cain envied his brother 
Because God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but not Cain's. What we see in this story, though, is how the sin nature is passed on from Adam and Eve to their children. God knows the heart of Cain. He knows what he is plotting. He wants to murder his brother. He is so angry. And God says to Cain that sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Sin crouches at the door of everyone. Sin desires to have us too. But by the power of God, we must master it. Later in chapter 4, we're going to see a man named Lamech who boasts to his wives that I have killed a man. And he will do it again. And violence begins to spread over the face of the earth. In fact, by the time of Noah in chapter 6, verse 5, we read that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And you look at that and it says God was grieved that he had made man. He, he looked out on the earth. He looked at his creation now marred by sin. He sees the wickedness in our world. He sees the evil in men's hearts. And God is grieved at what has happened. This is what theologians call total depravity. That sin has so permeated our heart, it has so permeated our world, that we are incapable of doing anything good in God's sight. And we are incapable of saving ourselves. Sin affects everything that we do. Even the things that we might think are good deeds are tainted by sin. So what did God do? Well, God chose a man named Noah a righteous man, the best man that he could find to start over again. And he called Noah and he said that he was going to destroy the earth with a worldwide flood, a great flood, and all mankind would be killed and only Noah and his family and all the creatures that were on the ark would be spared. And he commanded Noah to build an ark and Noah began construction of this huge floating vessel about the length of one and a half football fields. I mean, if you have ever been to a football game and you think about that and you look at that football field and you think this is one and a half football fields in length, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, it was huge. And he built it in the desert. I mean, he is there. If he's in that region of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers where they are in the desert, in what would be modern-day Iraq, it had never rained on the earth before up to this point. God had watered the garden by the springs that came up and watered the earth. And can you imagine what that would have been like? Can you imagine maybe even how embarrassed his kids were that this crazy man was building this ark out there in the desert? What's it for? And God would bring to him all of the creatures of the earth two by two to enter into the ark. And the heavens opened up and all the springs of the great deep burst forth and it flooded the earth. Now I know that there are skeptics who question a worldwide flood, but there is both physical evidence for it and what is really fascinating is how there are flood stories told by people groups 
all over the world. There are cultures and people groups in every part of the world that have stories of a great flood that covered the earth. Now that's amazing. And again, if you want to know more on things like this that are of an apologetic nature, that's one of the reasons why we offer the Truth Project class to help you kind of dig into those areas and see what the Scripture has to say and what evidence there is to support these things. Well, after the flood receded, God placed a rainbow in the sky. He gave a promise that he would never again destroy the earth by a great flood. But what we see is that the flood didn't solve the problem of man's sin. That's, that's the sad part of the story. God takes this man, Noah, who is righteous in his sight. He's the best man that he could find. And he says, no, I'm going to take you and your wife and your three sons and their wives and we are going to start again. He wipes out the human race and Noah is told that he and his family are to be fruitful and multiply and populate the earth once again. And we read that Noah planted a vineyard. And he planted that vineyard and that vineyard began to grow and then one day Noah got drunk and he lay naked in his tent and his son Ham saw his father's nakedness. Sin and shame and guilt was still present. Sin runs deep. It is still present in our world, even in the best of people, both men and women, and it is present in us. Have you ever been disappointed or hurt by someone that you trusted or respected? Ever been hurt by somebody that you loved and then they did something that just terribly disappointed or hurt you? It happens, doesn't it? It is because we are all fallen people. We are all flawed and we all stand in need of redemption. So how will God deal with our sin? I mean, how is God going to restore us to fellowship? How is God going to remake the world according to His original intention? To have fellowship with us in a perfect world without sin or the presence of evil at all. And to be able to do that for all of eternity? That's what the story is all about. And there are two hints given in the opening chapters of what God is going to do. The first one is found in Genesis 3.15. If you have the story, it's on page 6 at the top. And I'd like you to underline it. Genesis 3.15, it's where God has discovered man's sin and he has pronounced a curse on the serpent. And in Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There is going to come a seed of the woman, a child of the woman who would be born in human flesh, who would be the one who would one day crush Satan's head and bring about that victory that we all long for. But when? When will that child come? You know, in Genesis chapter 4, when Cain was born... Eve cried out, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man, and she thought he was the one. Maybe this is the one that's going to be 
God's Redeemer. Maybe this is the one who's going to be that Savior, that Deliverer. But it was not Cain. And the time would wait and continue until one who would be born of a woman would come who would be that victor. And in Genesis 3.21, we read that when God saw what Adam and Eve had done, and he saw their sin and their shame and their guilt, it was God himself who made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Remember, they had taken fig leaves to cover themselves, but here you have God who makes garments of skin for them as a covering. Where did those garments of skin come from? What does that mean? It means that a sacrifice was made. And what we will learn is that blood was shed to cover their sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. Wow. Can anyone see where this is going? You know... Here, thousands of years before Christ was born, we have these hints of what God is going to do. That's what's so amazing about this book. It's what's so amazing about the story if people will take the time to read and listen to it. Thousands of years before Jesus was born, God knew exactly what He was going to do. And the promise of a Savior was given in what is called the first mention of the gospel, Genesis 3.15. So in conclusion, what do we learn from the creation story? From the creation story, we discover the value of all human beings, that we are made in the image of God with dignity and worth in His sight. What gives you and me value is not what we accomplish, not what we do. It's not any kind of man-made significance but it is because God loves you and me and he made us to have a relationship with him. God's great desire, in fact, is to be with us. You will hear throughout the story that refrain that God wants to create a people that I will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's his great desire. God wants to be with you personally in fellowship with you that you might one day enjoy His presence. We see in the creation story the problem and the extent of man's sin. We see how pervasive sin is and how it's affected the earth. And really, it's the thing that answers the questions when we read the news today. I mean, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there so much tension and fighting and quarreling and all of the violence and hatred that we see? It all goes back to the Genesis story and the problem of man's sin that has permeated our world. And what we are going to see both in the creation story and all the way through the rest of the story is how at great cost to God, God has done everything possible to get you back. He loves you that much. And God will do everything He can to restore us to fellowship with Him through His Son. That's why Jesus came. Let's pray. Father, when we stop to consider what You said even at the beginning of the story here today, it is truly amazing. 
Man's fall did not take you by surprise. You knew what would happen when you created man. But you had a better plan. And you would one day send your son to be our Savior and Lord and you desire that each of us come into a relationship with him personally. Father, I pray for those who are here today that if anyone's uncertain about that, that they not only would stand in awe of you, but they would come to that point where they would acknowledge their sin and trust in you as Savior and Lord. And for all of us, Father, would you help us to just grow deeper, stronger, more firm and steadfast in our walk with you and help us to be a witness for Christ right where we live. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.